Welcome to another podcast from the Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium, based at SOAS, University of London. My name is Agatha Swota, and I'm speaking with Professor Mushtaq Khan, Executive Director of the Research Consortium. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Today we are going to be talking about digital identity systems. So before we get going, can you tell us what exactly are digital identity systems? So digital identities are what makes digital systems work. Digital systems are ways of delivering services and transacting using the digital format. But for that to work, individuals must have identities which are not easy to duplicate. And so typically what happens is that individuals have a number, and that number is linked to something unique to that individual, like their biometrics, their fingerprints, their iris maps, or perhaps in the future even their um, the faces using face recognition technology. That allows people to transact with each other and with the state, and it becomes much more difficult for people to have ghost identities, have multiple claims on the same um, services or subsidies or have fake accounts and so on. And so digital identities are seen as a way of improving not just security, but also for improving the delivery of services to citizens and enforcing citizenship rights. So digital identity systems have many strong adherence in developing countries. In Africa, for example, the World Bank is very much promoting such systems. Why haven't digital identity systems been rolled out widely in advanced countries? Several reasons for that. So one reason is that in advanced countries, people's identities are already well-established. Almost everybody has some address or bank account or some way of establishing their existence, which is easy to check. So people can engage in lots of activities and get state services. A lot of people in developing countries don't have even that. They don't have um, a stake on citizenship. But the other reason is because advanced countries have alternative systems, there is a trade-off with privacy. And although some advanced countries wanted to introduce digital systems and identity cards like the UK, this was pushed back by citizens who thought that the gains in, in security, in, for example, tracking terrorists and illegal immigrants, was not outweighed by the loss of privacy that many citizens would suffer because they would have to make available to public officials things that were not illegal but were considered to be private. So in advanced countries, there's a lot more resistance to digital identities being linked to identity cards and biometric data, whereas in developing countries, th there seems to be much greater willingness to proceed down that route. Are there any different challenges in developing countries? Yes, so that's where our research comes in. We got interested in digital identities as a way of controlling fraud, the fact that many citizens weren't getting services from public officials. They go to collect their um, bag of rice or whatever, fertilizer, and then they're told that someone else has taken it or that they're not on the list. So one way of making sure that people got their entitlements was to link their entitlement with a unique identity and having a, a, a digital process which makes it more difficult for them to be denied. However, we found that when we looked at all the evidence of how digital systems were working, that the experience was extremely mixed. And this led us to look much more deeply at why digital systems sometimes have positive effects, as we expect, but often have seriously negative effects. And that took us to look at 
the different types of reasons why rules are violated in developing countries and why people aren't following rules. And for some of these um, um, instances of rule violations, digital identities help, and in others, it doesn't help, but and, and even worse, can make things worse for the poor and so on, the very people we're trying to include. So what have you found? In which situations are these systems helpful? In which situations are they not? So it depends on why rules are being broken. So one of the things we need to really keep in mind is that developing countries are largely informal and many rules are not followed, but they're not followed for different kinds of reasons. And here, I mean, we have a theoretical framework which goes through all of this, but here is some uh, a very short explanation of the nature of the problem. The first reason is that Many rules have crept in in a developing country context, which are actually not easy to follow at all and might be contradictory with other rules. The reason why this happens is that in many developing countries, people don't expect to follow rules. And so governments often make rules in a very ad hoc way, not really checking very carefully, can they actually be followed? Are they contrary with other rules and so on? Because most people know that if the rule doesn't really work in practice, we can find some way of working our way around it. So you have many rules which are actually not easy to follow. Now, when these rules which are not easy to follow affect powerful people, those people work out informal systems, often using petty corruption to work their way around these rules. And when digital systems come in and make it transparent that they're not following these rules, they use their power and influence to change the rules. So one of the things that has happened with digitization is that the World Bank measures doing business conditions in developing countries. And they, for example, they measure how many days does it take to get this license or that permission. And in the past, of course, nobody followed these things. They would find informal ways of working their way around it. But with digitization, that's not so easy. So they begin to improve those rules. And many countries have improved their doing business conditions as a result. So this is one of the positive impacts of digitization. However, there are many rules which poor people can't follow. There are many rules, for example, if you're selling peanuts on the street of uh, a developing country capital, the peanut seller hasn't met lots of rules. They have no permission to sell their peanuts there. They haven't paid taxes. They haven't uh, fulfilled health and safety regulations. They haven't satisfied their employment regulations. But their problem here is that they can't, right? So they operate, again, using small bribes, and they um, manage to keep on doing their business because there's no alternative way of doing business. Now, once you start imposing rules on these people, they don't have the power and the capacity to say, make the rules such that I can start following them. So this is very different from when the rules affect the powerful. When the rules affect the very large informal sector, which might be 80% of your economy, these people can't get the rules aligned with their capabilities. So what happens here is, paradoxically, corruption might increase because they have to pay even more bribes to work their way around the system, or, as has happened in many countries, they go out of business. And this is what we describe as premature formalization. And one of the really adverse consequences of enforcing rules and, and digitization and you know, cashless transactions and online payment of taxes connected with these cashless transactions is that a lot of poor businesses and poor people 
are going out of business through premature formalization. And finally, you have the mega corruption, the mega corruption where very powerful people collude with politicians to extract um, rents and, and resources from society. The evidence is that digital identity systems have very little effect there at all. So where it has an effect is where the, the theft or the fraud is happening with less powerful people, often low-level bureaucrats. When lower-level bureaucrats are skimming money off or they're not giving entitlements to poor people or, or citizens, digital systems helps in getting rid of that fraud. And we have a lot of evidence that it works in this area. So in some areas, digital systems help. In other areas, they cause inadvertent damage. And in other areas, they have no effect. And we really need to look at the full picture to understand what is going on. Let's talk about financial inclusion for a minute. Many proponents of digital identity systems say that such systems will improve financial inclusion. What do you think about that? So this is not just about digital identities. Any form of um, identity determination, which is digital, including using phone numbers, for example, can help people transact um, on uh, the digital media much more easily. So we have seen in countries as diverse as Kenya and Bangladesh, the use of the mobile phone as a system of transmitting money from one person to another person. And this has been enormously successful. So here, digital identities or digital systems more broadly have been very beneficial in the transmission of money because it reduces the cost of establishing identity and reduces the probability of fraud. However, if you want to have an inclusive financial system, you also need to think beyond remittance to financial transactions which include borrowing money, investing money, and so on. And here, digital systems don't necessarily help because the people who don't have the capacity to borrow and invest, usually that happens because their capabilities are very low, they're poor people, and actually digital systems don't really help very much there. So what happens is a much more complicated story. If you have digital identity systems linked to bank accounts, paradoxically, it helps banks get rid of poor people who have um, limited credit history because they're bad lending risks. This improves the profitability of banks. But, but sadly and ironically, it doesn't help banks get rid of the really big people who are defaulters because the big people who are defaulters can keep on borrowing even though they are well known to be defaulters because they're politically connected and powerful. So in fact, the people who get screened out are the less powerful risks and not the more powerful risks where the big risks actually lie. So digital systems don't solve the problem when the violations are happening by powerful individuals or powerful organizations, but they can get rid of the less powerful. And this is actually linked to the success areas of digital systems. Digital systems work when the fraud is happening or the defaults are happening by less powerful people. So one of the areas in which digital systems have been really um, very successful is in getting rid of um, ghost claims on government subsidies. So in many developing countries, low-level bureaucrats, low-level politicians would collude with citizens and construct lots of ghost identities who would come and claim subsidies. As soon as you link 
the claim to a real identity, which has a digital number, the ghost claimants disappear. And that can save billions of dollars in um, subsidy losses. So these are areas where digital systems have great success. But of course, again, even here, they don't get rid of eligibility fraud, where the person is real, but is not eligible to get that subsidy because eligibility is determined by human intervention. The digital system just gets rid of identity fraud. It doesn't get rid of eligibility fraud. And so the picture is very mixed. Where there's a lot of identity fraud, yes, it has an effect. Where there is eligibility fraud, where powerful people are, are ripping society off, where powerful people are extracting identity systems on their own don't make a big impact. How do you ensure that everyone is included? That's a really big problem in many developing countries because maybe half the population, sometimes even more, may not have elementary things like birth certificates, proof of residence. Now, I think the World Bank and many others are helping developing countries ensure that the registration of people for digital identities is inclusive. And I think that with a lot of external help, that process of registration can be made inclusive. But the problem doesn't stop there. The problem is that even when you have an inclusive list of residents, there is no way you can prevent a government later on reopening the question and asking, are all citizens really citizens? Now, we are beginning to see this in many countries, including, remarkably, a, a developing country which used to have a very strong rule of law, namely India, where there are lots of protests going on right now about the government's decision to have a national registration of citizens, and then people might be left out and people might have to prove their citizenship, and a lot of bias might creep in in terms of which ethnicities, religions, and so on are included or not included. And in African countries, you have many countries where there are very strong tribal, ethnic, and religious divisions. Now, these kinds of issues have always existed. There have always been disputes in society about who is a citizen. The problem that we um, foresee, if we are not very careful and if we don't give a lot of thought to it, is what happens when these processes of ex-post decisions about who is a citizen and who is not may or may not get linked to digital identity systems, which then make it potentially easier for um, governments which have some ethnic or religious or other agenda to exclude these people much more effectively from services. Fortunately, we are not close to seeing that anywhere, but this is a scenario that we have to be aware of, particularly since across the world, we have situations of very strong ethnic, religious, and other divisions right now. And in fact, processes of ethnic cleansing in many countries, such as Myanmar, um, which have happened in recent history. So we are very mindful of the misuse that can be made of these systems, given the very strong divisions that exist in many developing countries. So you've outlined the risks and limitations of these systems pretty clearly. What are your recommendations? I mean, you're clearly not saying that these systems should be dismantled, but something needs to change. No, we are not anti-technology. We are not Luddites. Digital systems have a role to play in developing countries. What we are saying is that we need to understand the risks a lot better. And the risks are not random. The risks are very systematic. 
And there are different types of applications where the risks are much higher. And in other types of applications, the risks are lower. And the risks are different country to country, depending on the degree of formalization that already exists in the country, depending on the capabilities of the poor, depending on the rule of law and the enforcement of rules in developing countries. One of the fundamental problems is that developing countries don't have a very strong rule of law. It means that you might have laws and regulations protecting misuse of digital identities or digital systems, but they will be unequally enforced. Powerful people will get away, less powerful people will be forced to comply. So what we are saying is that when development partners are helping developing countries set up digital systems, they need to take all of these things into account. And then they have to have a risk mitigation strategy identifying areas where in that country, given its rule of law, given its compliance systems, given its capabilities, there are quick, easy wins for inclusive outcomes that actually will help the poor get better services and go slow on and even sometimes resist the introduction of systems where they're very likely to be misused and where inadvertently or sometimes deliberately certain groups might be excluded from social services benefits and economic activities. And that, I think, is a responsibility of responsible um, development partners and of theory and theorists who are advising the, the technical people who are usually very gung-ho about the benefits of digital systems. And I think what we are saying is that the technology people, the political economists, the lawyers, and people who understand society in terms of its level of development need to work very carefully together to identify the sequential rollout and the mitigation systems that need to be in place to make these things work. Thank you for speaking with me today, Mushtaq. And thank you to our listeners. You can learn more about the SOAS Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium by visiting our website at www.ace.soas.ac.uk or by following us on Twitter at ace underscore SOAS.